everybody. Welcome to Studio Z, a podcast of empowerment. I'm your host, Melissa Marvel. Welcome to our podcast. Today, I'm excited to have Tom Maeve join me as hey. co-host. And also, uh, as a guest with us, we have David Allgood with the Center for Accessible Living. Hi, David. Hello, everyone. How Good are you? Hi. Very well, thank you. How are you all? Great. I'm good. I'm good. He, he's he, he's actually he's he's a, doing great. He's really helped me with. I'm a tad nervous, David Allgood. I will tell you that right now because we don't know what. This is your second. This is your first. Technically, this is my first. Okay. <laughs> this your first day. Your first. The day. first day with Studio Z. So bear with us as as we go through this. But David, we are thrilled to have you and excited to again share the mission and purpose of what Studio Z is, and that's to be an advocate, an educator, uh, an environment for individuals uh, to help them find their journey and their pathway to their needs. So uh, without further ado, David, um, I'd love for you to, to share a little bit about your personal journey. And also, everyone, David Allgood is the, a director of advocacy for the Center for Accessible Living. So David, it's all yours. Thank you very much, Melissa. Um... Well, a little bit about myself. Uh, I'm a native Louisvillian, born and raised here. Um, and in 1982, when I was 16, some friends and I were horsing around in the backyard pool. And we used a deflated wrap like a slingshot, and I threw some people in. And it was, <clears throat> excuse me. Uh, <clears throat> excuse me. As long, as long as you're okay, we're, we, you'll have all the excuses you need. Wow. I apologize about that. So we, uh, it was my turn to uh, try to go over this. I apologize about this. <clears throat> Guess what? We can edit. It's all yeah, good. Yeah, we can, we can edit. Well, yeah. <laughs> we can, we can clear your throat as much as you need to. <laughs> that is crazy. Um, so when it was my turn to be plugged into the pool, my chin at the bottom of the pool, and I sustained a... Uh, five cervical uh, injury to my spinal column and that instantly paralyzed me so I went from being a track running track and lane football at St. X to being a person who was going to need a wheelchair to ambulate for the rest of my life so I was fortunate enough to have great family and friends and held a support system and so I was able to finish out my junior and senior year at St. X and went up to the University of Kentucky and at that time, the University of Kentucky was the only college that had any attended care program that could assist individuals like myself who needed basic care activities of daily living all every day, every night. And so, I you know, as the St. X, I was one of the only one, people, one person with a visible disability, 1,400 boys or mm -hmm. males. And I went to the University of Kentucky, and I'm living in a dorm with about seven other people with spinal cord injuries and other disabilities. So... Uh, was kind of an epiphany for me to be around other individuals with disabilities that were similar to mine. Mm -hmm. I learned so much from those individuals and how to accomplish and do things and, you know, tie a string to a doorknob and put your hand in it and hit your wheelchair and go full speed and close your door. You mm -hmm. get an oversized key ring on your key and you can be able to twist it when you don't have good finger dexterity. So just a, a learned immense amount by being around my peers with disabilities and, uh, being creative really, absolutely and uh just uh well i have to admit i was more dependent on my family to say the least when i was 
right after my injury, and they were very protective and, again, very helpful to just being up there on your own, having to figure out things on your own was very enlightening and very helpful to me. So uh, and that's where I really got into advocacy as well um, at the University of Kentucky. Uh, they built a brand-new baseball stadium and had no accessible seats whatsoever. Oh, wow. And we tried a meeting with the athletic director, and uh, this was before the ADA. And uh, I knew that there was federal laws that uh, for institutions of uh, higher learning that received federal funding, they had to be accessible. And we couldn't get a meeting with the athletic director, and then I learned about the power of the media when we went um, by uh, another friend and a wheelchair user. We were on the front cover of the Kentucky Colonel, which is the newspaper at the University of Kentucky, and it said, why can't they get in? And the next day, we got an appointment with the assistant athletic director. That was social media back in the day, huh? Right. Yeah. And, <laughs> how, and how long did it take before they made it accessible and, and put, you know, uh, whatever the, whatever it was that you needed to, you know, to enjoy a game? They spent close to, I think, about $180,000 to make a uh, – it, it was probably the – I don't know. If, honestly, I don't remember what it was the next season or if it was the beginning of the other season and they finished it before we – we did go to the – the accessible seating that they created that was almost like a dugout for us with the netting over it and everything for anyone who had a mobility impairment they could view the game safely from that thing but uh, you know that's where I really found out that there was power and I had federal law backing me again it was before the ADA so Mm -hmm. then I left well actually we helped uh, when I was at the University of Kentucky as well Rupp Arena only had one two platforms of wheelchair accessible seating so you had about I don't know, a couple hundred students, not all of them with mobility impairments, but we were crammed like sardines into this one spot, and we tried to advocate on behalf of all of us who had mobility impairments to open up the other end, and, well, we finally did. Right after I graduated, they opened up the other end to make it for more wheelchair-accessible seating, and I was fortunate enough to be able then to become a regular season ticket holder at UK Games and still have the tickets today. So, advocacy can pay off in a lot of ways. I got a question. You kept, and I, I pardon my naivete. I'm just my ignorance when it when it comes to this. I think it's fascinating. But you keep you keep twice now. You said that was before the ADA. Is that what you said? I did the Americans with Disability Act, oh, uh, which is basically, yeah. Basically, they, sorry, that I'm I'm uh, very guilty of this. I I have to keep reminding myself when I hear an acronym. acronym. Or, yes, we Ac- need to explain it. So the ADA. So yes, it's been around just what over thirty years. And the 30th anniversary in July of this year was the basically the Civil Rights Act for People with Disabilities and Americans with Disabilities Act. So, uh, yes, that's a big federal law that and ensures inclusion for people with disabilities and employment, access, uh, communication. Uh, it's basically the federal law that allows us to be a part of society in every way possible that every non-disabled individual does. So. That is our Civil Rights Act for oh, people awesome. with disabilities. That's great. I, and I, I'm so thrilled to hear that you are a season ticket holder because I was thinking after all that work, you should be a season ticket holder. But well, uh, I guess fortunate <laughs> enough to be able to do it. Yes. Well, my question is, is once you learn how powerful your voice can be with, you know, the backing of the ADA, but how did that, how did that move you forward? Well, once I got back to Louisville from, I got graduated with a master's degree, spent a little bit of time in law school, didn't like that, got a master's degree, came back to Louisville, and then, again, prior to ADA, uh, tried to find some employment, 
And uh, I think there was total determination on their part because someone with a pretty severe disability to be in a quadriplegic is in a power wheelchair. I think they were afraid about their insurance costs going up if they hired me. Mm. So it was kind of uh, just getting frustrated, but I started volunteering at the Center for Accessible Living. Uh-huh. And that turned into a, uh, a eventual part-time job, an eventual full-time job. But it was there that I really learned right after the ADA was passed, really what, uh, in, how empowered we had just become in protection, federal protections against discrimination in employment and access and uh, communications, transportation, all those areas that uh, everyone else takes for granted all their life of don't have a disability. But it took us until 1990 to really become a protected class of citizens. So and before that, you could discriminate us in any way you wanted to. But uh, with the Center for Accessible Living being a disability resource center, that's what disability resource centers do. They empower individuals to become more uh, effective advocates for themselves or provide information about the services that they don't provide those services directly. How someone with a disability can access community living, community options. We want to be in inclusive opportunities for the disability community throughout uh, the United States. And every state has at least one disability resource center or center for independent living in all the territories as well. So some states have multiple, like we have uh, four here in Kentucky. So, um, you know, being around the Center for Accessible Living really gave me a whole different view, particularly after the idea was passed of what really was obtainable for those of us living with disabilities. So when you've, you've talked or you've spoken about your hurdle to kind of find your first job and or your volunteer that converted into your first uh, employment with the center, what were, what were your challenges that you faced that others might face and have similar experiences with? And how, with the ADA and the, the new laws, uh, you know, protecting the individuals, uh, what are the benefits that we have today that we might not have had uh, then? Um, well, you know, again, before and, and before the ADA, you could go apply for a job and have a visible disability, and uh, they could just say that, you know, we're not hiring right now. We don't, uh, or, you know, they could both say, literally say that, well, I'm, I'm afraid my interest might go up and we don't want to really uh, employ you at this point in time. So after the ADA, they can only ask you certain questions about employment. They can ask if you can perform the essential job functions. And if you can, and, and they can ask if uh, you might need uh, a reasonable accommodation, they can ask you about your disability, how it may impact your ability to do the job, uh, as long as they can make some uh, reasonable accommodations for you to perform the essential job functions, then they uh, have to try to go through with that. Now, again, there's always some gray area where they might be able to get out, but there's more opportunity in if you think that you have been discriminated against then you have the option to file a complaint with the um, uh, Office of Civil, I'm trying to just blank on the name, um, OCC. Um, anyway, if there's a federal agency that deals with employment, man, I'll, on the I'll, name. I'll do the homework after the, after this recording. <laughs> um, uh, so there's now some protections against uh, overt or subtle discrimination if you're a person with a disability trying to find employment so but you know i experienced quite a bit of that before the ada when i was trying to find employment then mm-hmm. you know i just fell into a wonderful position at the center for accessible living because 51 percent of employees at centers for independent living have to be 
someone with a uh, disability and 51% of our board has to be someone with a disability. So mm-hmm. it's a very inclusive, welcoming environment for those of us with disabilities. And I just, you know, learned and fostered and started really getting more um, confident in what I could do in my advocacy abilities and going up to Frankfurt and testifying. Um, real quick. Go ahead. David, I want to ask you I want to ask you a lot about your work in Frankfurt, but real quick, uh, you said something huh? that uh, intrigued me about the Center for Accessible Living. You said that it needed to maintain a 51% uh, individuals with disabilities in the workforce and the board. And the board? No. I, I, yes. make sure I, I want to make sure I heard this correctly. Yes, every center for every center for independent living or disability resource center in the United States has by law has to be composed of 51% of its employees have to have a disability and okay. 51% of its board members have to have a disability to be, I mean, it's just about inclusion and people knowing what's going on. And again, it's basically the walk the walk and talk the talk. You're around individuals who experienced similar situations or may be able to. So that's, that's intertwined then with your articles and your bylaws on the, how the organization is to be maintained and run. Correct. Exactly. Okay. Exactly. Excellent. Excellent. Okay. It's interwoven to the fabric. That's that's uh-huh. that's awesome. Okay. I just wanted to make sure I understood that correctly. So yep. thank you. And then as I as I interrupted again, I I know that you've I, actually you and I had the pleasure of meeting as we both uh, went to Frankfurt and you with more, much more experience. But we met in Frankfurt as we were trying to be advocates for individuals with disabilities. And so I'd right. just like for you to share more about, you know, the the experience that you've had with uh, with our uh, legislators and, and your workings in Frankfurt. Um, I was, again, uh, you know, I was involved. I always liked politics. I was involved in student government with the senator, arts and science center in the UK, and then uh, became involved at the center. And then we started, uh, this was like 95, perhaps, and we were trying to get increased funding for the personal care attendant program which is a general fund program in Kentucky that provides assistance for people who are trying to live in the community. They get a very small stipend to help pay for attendant care. Mm-hmm. And we were trying to get an increase in the funding because it was in the days woefully underfunded, the hourly rate that you can pay somebody. But uh, they asked if I would testify before a committee. I think it was 96. And I was a little intimidated because I had never done that in the state government. I'd done it in UK on a few issues. But uh, then I went up to there and really basically being an effective advocate is basically sharing your life story. It's, you know, it can be a little intimidating because you think you're in front of legislators, but believe me, some of those legislators are, uh, are easy to get along with. Don't know exactly what, a lot of times what the issue is about because they have a ton of bills that they have to become knowledgeable about. Mm-hmm. But basically I shared my life story and how, Attendant care has helped me and how it's helped me, you know, become more independent and um, not rely on other individuals. And basically all I did was tell my story and really totally easy. And after that, I had no problem testifying. And a lot of legislators come up to you afterward and thank you for your sharing the information. And um, it's really not that difficult to do. I mean, so- you might be intimidated, but once you get to it, used to it, it's really not that difficult. So if you ran, if you were to come in contact with a family that had, you know, a disability concern or an issue that they wanted to, to bring up with our 
state government and our legislators. How would they go about doing that? Is Would they reach out to someone such as yourself or what other options to just the, the general public that would have that kind of question? What would they do? Um, they could reach out to me as director of advocacy at the Center for Accessible Living. And another good, unique thing about Centers for Independent Living is they're a cross-disability organization. They, we serve all types of disabilities. It doesn't matter. You know, we're not, we're not specifically Alzheimer's or brain injury or intellectual developmental disabilities. We're all disabilities. Mm-hmm. So it's one of the unique aspects of a cross-disability. But you're more than welcome to call the center if you have some advocacy issues or concerns. But a lot of times, like I say, if you do have brain injury, you might try the Brain Injury Association of Kentucky. Uh, you know, a lot of times, peers or people that have experienced similar situations are really knowledgeable about that. Mm-hmm. But and they already have some advocates that are working on. Some of them have lobbyists, and well, we'll stress that I'm an advocate, not a lobbyist, because you do have a register if you're a lobbyist to be in Frankfurt, and we just go to educate and. Right. Our elected officials about uh, issues that are important in our life, but yeah, it's uh, and then a lot of times individuals become their own best advocates. Again, contact your state representative or your state senator, tell them the issues that you're having, whether it be with the Medicaid, transportation, but you know, it could be anything. And a lot of times, uh, legislators are concerned that their constituents might have issues that are negatively impacting them and. They might be proactive and try to assist you, and a lot of times they will contact you with a state agency or local agency that could be beneficial in you resolving the matter. And sometimes you, they might even welcome you to the Capitol to testify before a committee that oversees that issue that you're having concern with. It so sounds it, like you are saying that from experience. Pardon me? Are you, it sounds as if you're explaining that to us from experience. Yes, I mean, uh, uh, I'm one of the, well, I'm probably the only person with a visible disability that's in Frankfurt every day, oh, almost every day, and during the General Assembly, trying to effectively communicate with our elected officials. And, you know, it's really important, I think, that legislators see you or hear from you, and you don't have to go to Frankfurt if you live in one end of the state or the other. You, those legislators, and again, before COVID times, mm-hmm. a lot of times would have town hall meetings, for lack of a better word, or coffee during the Saturday morning uh, and you can go talk to your legislators and uh, it's really effective to do that and I've had legislators call me on my cell phone to say hey what do you think about this bill and I would right. give them my honest opinion and uh-huh. let them know what I thought and uh, so I mean you become a trusted source because again legislators can see up to 12 to 1500 bills in a three month session right. so they're not going to be able to be knowledgeable and they look for people who can be trusted experts on situations. So, again, if you don't know, I always say share this too. If you don't know something and the legislator asks you a question and you don't know it, now, don't make something up you think they want to hear. Just let them tell them, I'll get back with you. Let me get that information and make sure that you don't ever make something up because you could make them look pretty bad if they went on the floor and testified about something like that. So if you don't know it, just tell them you don't know it, but you will get the information and get back to them. I appreciate that. Uh, any any three pointers that you might want to give to the to the audience? Uh, any, I guess, hurdles or barriers or anything that you think is important that we need to be taking some educational components to Frankfurt with right now, or any type of hurdles that we can work with the community to maybe make some positive change. Well, I always, um, well again, I guess 
just my background and uh-huh. where I work. But community-based services are so more, more uh, better quality of life when we can put community-based services to practice uh-huh. uh, to save the uh, save the state of Kentucky a tremendous amount of money. I think you know, like I said, the personal care attendant program maybe averages about sixteen thousand dollars a year, where someone in a nursing home is thirty-five to no, forty-five to sixty-eight thousand dollars a year, mm-hmm. and an institution can be up to two hundred thousand for a year for one person. Wow! So community, community-based services are much better quality of life with a much more uh, effective way to make our tax dollars work more efficiently for all of Kentucky. And it's a better, again, let's go back to a better quality of life. Um, but it can be very expensive to keep someone in an institution, institutional settings um, versus the community. And, and and that people with non-disabled see that people with disabilities can function and, you know, work just like everyone else. They might do things a little bit differently. But, you know, in the end, we're not looking for special treatment. We're just looking for equal treatment. And uh, a lot of times uh, it's taken for granted, I think, by non-disabled people that we can't do this. Like saying, I drive my own van. I'm a quadriplegic and don't have full use of my hands, but I drive my own vehicle since 1990. So I, um, I just have to say that I am extremely impressed that you can do that because I have been to um, the outfitter company that is, uh, it's escaping me at the moment, but the modifications that they can make to the vehicles so that people can drive. It is absolutely amazing. Absolutely amazing. Yeah. So I'm the I'm pyramid totally. conversion does a ton of uh, conversions. I've seen people, they can change the gas to the other side. They can drive with a joystick just like a wheelchair. Mm-hmm. Uh, mm-hmm. Pretty impressive what they can do to fabricate it. So I've been very fortunate to be able to actually get ready to get my fourth van in my driving career since my accident. So, But wow. again, that's just, I like community-based services, uh, you know, saving uh, taxpayers money. Um, you know, we're looking at... Uh, Right now, a lot of people probably don't know this, but in the state of Kentucky right now, if you have a disability and you're a parent, you can have your parental rights terminated just for the fact that you have a disability. Oh, my you word. Be, you I... don't have to be abusive. You don't have to be neglectful. Just because you have a disability, they can take your parental rights away because a lot of times people in the field don't think that they're that people with disabilities can be parents and they literally can take the child away from them. So we are working we formed a coalition of different advocacy groups across the state to address this. And um, we're going to look at this session. I don't think it's going to Is this all states or is this just Kentucky or? No, I think we're down to maybe like 20, 20, 20 to 25 that can still do this. And South Carolina just passed a bill last year that corrected that because that was true in South Carolina and they passed it in one year, which was amazing. But uh, it's, that's still the case in Kentucky just, you're merely on the fact that you have a disability, your parental rights can be terminated. And uh, we're, we're working, wanting to work with the Cabinet for Health and Family Services to give their employed, uh, the workers that go out in the field some better disability sensitivity and awareness training, but also get this bill uh, changed and uh, get a bill introduced. Do you, that think, will do you think there, there's a limit on that? Like I, I went to uh, school with a girl who both her parents were deaf. Is that considered a, de- a disability? Is there, is. Cer- is there certain levels, I guess, is what I'm asking. Well, I'll tell you what. The law really focuses on intellectual and developmental disabilities. I think it's going for the IQ. But mm. um, uh, if you interpret it broadly enough, and I think that it has been done, 
rather broadly, it can apply to any disability. So um, we think that's a travesty, and we are going to work to rectify that problem through legislation, but uh, it will probably have to be next year because it's a short session and it's a budget year again. But we're going to look into that. And, of course, one of my pet peeves is the person who drives a vehicle is accessible parking. And I can't tell you the number of times that uh, people park in the strike lines that are that's a designated access aisle for me to get my ramp out and then my wheelchair out, which mm-hmm. takes me about you know about four or five feet. And uh, people park in the strike line all the time, and I'll come out of the mall and I'm ready to go, and somebody's parked and I'm trapped. So I either have to wait until they decide to come out, or I have to get someone who's ambulatory to move my vehicle standing up with no driver's seat using the gas and the brakes. I mean, it's not, you know, it's not so, an easy feeling seeing a $60,000 van uh, backed out with someone that could hit the gas and the brakes because they're standing up. So I uh, think, David, I think there needs to be a PSA for that. I've, I've never parked in there, but I, I've but I, either. but I've never knew what it was for. Oh, really? I thought maybe it was for a fire truck or something. I hadn't, I had no idea that, I mean, it makes perfect sense, but, you know, uh, wow. We're, work, we're working on that. Um, we, uh, we, the law was passed recently here in Jefferson County. This didn't, I didn't even know this. That 96-inch access out of the larger strike line mm-hmm. is for vans like myself, side-loading vehicles. And it's not against the law to uh, park in that in Jefferson County. Wow, or in I did not state of know that. I did not so know this that. Summer, this summer, ordinance was introduced and passed, and now it is law, and a police officer can get someone who parks in that strike line. Um, but we are working on trying to get more um, education about that uh, strike thing. But it's, it's, a, it's a pet peeve of mine, because I can't tell you the number of times that I just wanted to go get in my van and go home, but I'm stuck there and you know, in the mall and St. Matthews. It just happened this summer to my wife and me, and someone parked in the strike line, and, uh, you know, we uh, tried to get them to come, mall security, and they were watching us on the cameras the whole time, and they couldn't said they couldn't do it because it's uh, on private property and the vehicle and this, that, and the other. And it was like, I can't believe we're not going to do that. So then my wife said to put it in neutral, and one of the security guards pushed the car back, and then a couple other people helped push it back. But, um, you know, that law has now changed, and you can be – find um i guess it could be 100 to 250 dollars now for parking the strike line so hopefully that'll be more um more uh, cognizant of that and we are gonna we, we were approaching a, a local tv station to do a story but then covid and some other things in washington took precedent so we're still trying to work on that well i wish you good luck with that because i would have never thought in a zillion years though that someone would actually park in it um, because it's marked off. Um, and, and, you know, I, I hate to hear that because I, we, you know, Zoom group, we have uh, multiple uh, wheelchair accessible and they have the side entry. So I know exactly what you're referring to and how frustrating that could be. So I, mm-hmm. I hope that you have great success in, in getting the, the, I guess it's the laws changed regarding penalties and fines and then just overall education and the signage. Maybe the signage could be improved. Because I know that I think a simple sign with an icon and with a with the van with the ramp on the side. Just like they have the icon we, of the person with the, you know. You've probably already thought of that, right, David? We've thought of a number of things. Like maybe <laughs> putting maybe even putting a putting a pole right in the middle of the parking spot, the access aisle that says, you know, that would prevent any vehicle to be able to bend the uh, property owners say that, you know, snow removal and everything. So I'm like, snow removal? So you're going to pile all the snow in the 
XFL anyway. Yeah. But there's they always have some excuses that they come up with. But hopefully now that this law has been passed in Jefferson County, and it also is valid, it's already passed in Lexington about parking in the XFL. But the rest of Kentucky, you can park in the XFL and not have any problems. Mm-hmm. So we're going to try to work on a state bill. Uh, we've got another group of advocates, all of us are wheelchair users, and we drive our vehicles. So we're working on trying to get that matter resolved as well. So there's never a, a lack of uh, initiatives that we can be working on. And like I say, it's, it's my life story. It's, I mean, when I go to Frankfurt and tell them that, you know, I had to, you know, had, some, had someone drive back my vehicle up or I went to the state fair one year, and it's a story I tell every time, and I had to take up two spots because every accessible spot at the state fair is always taken up. And uh, so I took up two spots way in the very back of someone keyed the side of my van because they thought I was being a jerk to try oh, to take a two spot. Oh, my goodness. Wow. So that, so that trip to the fair cost me $500. But, um, yeah. So it's just uh, sharing your life experiences. And a lot of the legislators, I mean, I've gotten about two or three different tracking bills passed and still working on it. But, you know, the legislators come to me and say, I did not know about that. And I'm sorry that happened. Well, so, your life's work is very helpful for many. So that is, absolutely. you know. Congratulations for all those efforts. We are, I, we could continue this conversation and maybe we will uh, someday on another uh, podcast. But in, in getting close to closing here, David, is there anything that you would like to share about services that the center specifically could, you know, individuals that might be listening would want to uh, contact the center for, for uh, assistance, for, for instance, excuse my uh, lisp there. Uh, the social, social security benefits or or other issues? Sure. I mean, we uh, all of our, one good thing about the center, everything we offer is free, no charge whatsoever to you, except for our sign uh, language, American Sign Language interpreters, and some accessibility surveys. But I do advocacy. If you need advocacy issues, we can try to help you with that if you call us. We have a housing program that it tries to assist individuals on Section 8 vouchers, get a, a affordable, accessible housing she will guide you through the process. She's amazing. We've done it for years. It's our number one requested service is the housing. We administer the personal care attendant program for the state of Kentucky and Louisville. We have an interpreter program. If you need an American Sign Language interpreter, which you are required to have, you're supposed to have effective communication. So if you have a deaf customer or a friend or whatever that tries to get services somewhere, particularly with doctor's office or visits, they have to be afforded a uh, licensed or certified inter- American Sign Language interpreter. And we have those on staff. We have a ramp builders program. If you live in Jefferson County and you meet certain requirements for the program, you can get a ramp built for your house for free. If it gives you safe exit and entry from your uh, house, it might be a year and a half wait, but we do have the program. You can get on the waiting list. We have uh, the in- a program where if you want to go back to work and you're concerned about your benefits, Medicaid and Medicare, Social Security, like I was when I started first started working and didn't want to impact my benefits. Mm-hmm. We have a free service that will tell you what you can and can't do, what you can make, what you need to keep for your records, and they can do that over the phone or meet with you, um, social distancing-wise, and that's a free. So we have a lot of different services, mm-hmm. and a lot of our services are information referral. If we don't, if the, if we don't have the service directly that we administer, then we'll direct you to the local, state, or federal agency that can best help you, help you uh, with what you're trying to look for. So we're basically an information referral uh, service for people with disabilities. And like I say, everything is free. It doesn't cost you a time to contact us. 
Well, I thank you for sharing that about the Center for Accessible Living, and I thank you for joining the show. I thank Tom for... for... Yeah, thanks for letting me sit in. This is very, <laughs> uh, very interesting and amazing. And, and you know, Thank you all. Yes, yes. Thank you, David. I was going to say, and you know, it's one of those things that nonprofit organizations, the Center for Accessible Living, Zoom Group, we all are part of a larger network of individuals that need differing types of supports. And so having these kind of conversations and bringing this information to the table is very helpful, I hope, uh, for the community. So again, thank you for participating. Thank you for being on the call. Thank you for sharing your story. And, uh, you know, if anybody needs to, to have any qu questions about what David spoke of today, feel free to reach out to the center or to Zoom group. And so we thank you very much. And David, you just have a wonderful rest of your day. Thank you all. You did the same. Have a great night. All right. Thanks, David. Bye-bye. Bye-bye. Bye. Hey, everybody. Thanks for joining. To see upcoming guests, check us out at studioz.space. <laughs>